Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 47 Suicide Squad Don't worry, I still love you I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic, I'm your DC Films apologist Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, Suicide Squad. Love and hate, critics, demographics, and punk rock. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. I'm back and I don't have a lot of time, so let's get right into it. I've seen the film three times now and my feelings are still evolving on this film. But if I had to sum it up, I'd say that I love this film in spite of itself. We'll unpack what that means a little later, but my love and admiration for the film keeps growing with all that I'm taking in and I've been down this path before. With BVS, I can definitely say my appreciation for it has kept growing since theatrical release. And even if my issues with that film remain, the impact of those issues on me has faded significantly since then. And I think that's in part to choosing to appreciate rather than tear down. Everyone thinks that they can play armchair filmmaker or industry analyst or Monday morning quarterback this thing. And I have those impulses too, but unless you have a time machine or intend to actually enter and impact the industry, I find myself at peace and happier looking to understand a work. Keeping an open mind to understand, respect, and learn helps you appreciate more, be joyful, and love more, rather than coming at something with knives and claws out, just because of an initial gut reaction. Our willful and intelligent minds are tools, and you can choose to apply that to justify and grow in your revulsion of something you disliked, or you can use it to challenge yourself to be more open to the imperfect and find value irrespective of faults. I'm not saying ignore criticism, but I'm explaining why I hope to supply something a little different. With Suicide Squad, like Harley's signature sidearm, I've got a mixture of love and hate going on, but I'm excited to eventually read through the novelization and pour over the art book and revisit this film on home release. A quick endorsement of the art book, I think I have to put it above both Man of Steel and BVS. I appreciate how those art books maintain a little mystery and mystique for those films, but the Suicide Squad book gives us more detail to dive into. The loose letters and postcards etc. are a little gimmicky, but I was surprised at how effective they were this one time, in an offbeat and quirky way that matches the spirit of the Suicide Squad. Of course, all that extra insight into behind the scenes can feed into that frustration of feeling that stuff was cut. I had stayed away from the internet for two weeks leading up to Suicide Squad for non-movie related reasons, but it let me go in not knowing that Flash was in the film. I didn't know that there was going to be a mid credit scene. I didn't know that there was bad 
had critical reception. In fact, I was expecting bad reviews, but guessing that the film would be darker and more serious than the marketing. Unfortunately, I think I studied the marketing too well, because I couldn't watch the film the first time without reflexively playing spot the differences. I feel like I noticed every different take and everything missing. I'm the kind of completionist who considers it a blessing that we have the BVS theatrical cut just so I can have that alternate shot of Lex in front of the LexCorp sign or Superman streaking down from the sky. So even tiny change-ups fomented a fear of missing out, not to mention the absence of entire scenes and possibly storylines. But my compulsion is not the film's fault or even necessarily marketing's fault. But I just couldn't turn off that part of my brain in my first viewing and feeling frustrated at missing lines and scenes and shots. It definitely wasn't what I was expecting, which again is not intrinsic to the film itself. From the outset, I always wanted this to be a more risky and edgy and perhaps experimental and quirky or darker and subversive, confrontational and controversial because the bad guys get to play in those spaces. But I underestimated how much people loved the villains as essentially heroes. I thought we could get away with compelling if unlikable or despicable characters because of the squad's relative obscurity. But that wasn't where the film ended up, and that's okay. You know, the Suicide Squad is an incredibly dark comic, and you know, one of the original ones, it opens with a bunch of terrorists slaughtering people in an airport. It's kind of fascinating how refractory it was of our times today. Obviously, I didn't want to go there <laughs> in the film, but it's interesting the actual footprints, origins of it. That was writer-director David Ayer in an interview with Empire, and we'll be hearing from him throughout this episode pulling from junket interviews. So back to expectations. I think some expected Guardians-level glee. I expected Ayer to do something surprisingly serious, and we got a mix with mixed results. I was definitely taken aback by the soundtrack, the energy, and the animations from the get-go. But I adjusted quick, and I said, okay, this is where we're going with then. I'm on board. Take me there. I readied myself to wrap my head around a Scott Pilgrim, Edgar Wright sort of show, but then that style didn't really carry into the rest of the film. But expectations are what I bring into the film, not the film itself. I think there was an expectation of what the film should have been, and the Joker, people really wanted more Joker and wanted him to be an A-plot component. The fact is, people will be watching this for years to come. People well and truly removed from the marketing campaign and expectations. So even if I hate how I personally couldn't set them aside in my first viewing, it's not necessarily a mark against the film itself. This is your first experience of making a film that gets this kind of crazy scrutiny. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's both a wonderful and a terrible thing. Um, You know, it's people seem to project so much into these movies. They push so much into them and it's uh, creates an incredible amount of expectation. Yeah. Not to say that all the issues are external, but we won't get into that now. Let's get on to the love. Even in my first viewing, what did I love? Lots of big things. I love that we got a film at all. I love the characters through and through. I love the cast, the acting, the direction. I love the world building, the deep history, the military and politics 
graphics. I love the production, set, and costume design. I love the Easter eggs. I think most of that is self-explanatory, so I'm not going to go into them all, but I do want to elaborate on that first one. We shouldn't take Suicide Squad for granted. You know, everything about this film is incredibly controversial, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really a miracle that I got to make it. It wasn't a top-tier DCIP, and it was gratifying to see the WB take a chance on a lesser-known concept, and it was great to see how excited the public was about it. There are safer bets, more established characters, more valuable IP, but sometimes you have to gamble on the unconventional. I hope we get more of these kinds of films sprinkled into the standard Justice League lineup. And of course, there are more things I appreciate, but we'll let those come up whenever they do. So after I came out of my first viewing, I was let down, but I wanted to give the film a second chance as soon as I could. And I did briefly look at some of the critical reception, and I was floored at how hyperbolic and vitriolic some of it was. I could take their points, but not their poison. Well, I think that, you know, some of the criticism is so over-the-top vitriolic that the fans recognize that there seems to be something else going on, and they want the opportunity to see the movie and ring in on the movie and not be dictated to how they should feel about it. Many of the things that I had a mixed reaction to, they perceived as complete and fatal flaws to the film, which didn't seem to matter to the box office or the audience in my second screening, who were all laughing and cheering and clapping throughout the film. They had a great time. Sometimes I wonder if the critics are writing the articles for themselves and not the audience who really enjoy movies. And, you know, the people that have seen the movie when I'm in the theater there and it's playing, like the laughter and the gasps mm. and, and, and there's definitely joy in there. It's a fun summer movie. Obviously, some people are having a good time regardless of what some critics thought. And that good time was infectious. With a totally amped crowd and my expectations adjusted, my second viewing was so much more enjoyable. For me, personally, I think I love this film in spite of the film. Whatever the problems are, I'm absolutely able to put those aside and enjoy myself. And the best I can explain it is something like this. When my kid creates a completely incoherent crayon script, and says, Happy Father's Day! Well, my heart melts and I swell with pride and I don't just want that on the fridge, but framed. And it's the same when attending a piano recital or a school play or watching Little League. It's attending your best friend's band, eating your mom's home cooking, or smelling your wife's perfume. I could critique the art. I've heard and seen better performances. I've eaten better food. And I might not even really like perfume. But I can say for all of the above that I truly, honestly, sincerely love all of the above, imperfections and all, because I love the people behind it. The meaningful connections and attachments that I have to them matter more than any analysis of the end product. And no, that isn't objective, it isn't critical, but it isn't meant to be, and that's okay. These are completely appropriate biases, and it'd be strange if you didn't have them. Imagine if I compared my kid's drawing to a Cezanne, scoffed, and threw it out. It's the reason that these movies have DC characters, in a growing cinematic universe, and this is not just a generic one-off film. It's not meant to be received in a vacuum or enjoyed without attachment. Now, there's a fine line between love and hate, and attachment can increase expectations, which can turn to bitter and angry entitlement easily. I'll, I'll be honest, it's scary, and I hope that this connects with the fans, because we all know, you know, they can be brutal. 
but that's generally a less mature and unhealthy sort of adoration. The accepting parent loves that same kid through all their changes and transformations and growing pains. It's an unhealthy expectation that your kid should stay cute, adorable, and innocent forever, and to lament leaving the past at the expense of the present or the future. The wise parent loves their kid through thick and thin, even when that kid that they send away to college comes back a different know-it-all. Love in that context is a rewarding commitment that transcends momentary like. The parent still loves the kid, is committed to a continual relationship, even if in the moment they don't like that every sentence starts with a corrective, well, actually, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not a contradiction. You can love someone and still know they do bad things. This is captured perfectly by Zoe's line, Daddy, I know you do bad things. Don't worry. I still love you. It's not a contradiction to love even contradicting takes on a character. I did my research. I did my homework. I grew up reading the comics and I've always been a DC Comics fan. Batman, Superman are my favorites, but it's hard because the comics themselves contradict themselves. And one person likes this storyline. One person likes this other storyline. And the storylines can conflict with each other. So how do you choose? How do you pick? Now, Ayer has to pick for the sake of telling a story, but you don't have to pick in making a commitment to love. It's okay to love Superman in every age and every movie, even with vast differences and takes. It's okay to love Batman 66 and The Dark Knight Returns at the same time. It's not like I'm going to look back at my kid's life and pit their teens against being a toddler and love only one era. So with that understanding, I think it's okay to not like this film to have your own concerns and criticisms. But even so, I still think you can see this film repeatedly, enjoy seeing it each time, have a great time, and love it and I think that's where I am. It isn't what I was expecting or to my tastes and it challenges the metrics that I'd normally use to evaluate a film so I can't say that I like this film but I can say without contradiction that I think I still love this film. I probably could have saved a whole lot of wind if I just summed this up as a guilty pleasure, something that you know is bad but still enjoy. But I don't think that quite fits my situation because I didn't quite enjoy Suicide Squad in that way. But I do truly enjoy it. And I came to think this way based on comments from Kevin Smith and some comments from David Ayer. First was how glowing Kevin Smith's reception despite his criticisms of BVS. He came around on BVS somewhat simply because of how in a single moment he could turn to his lifelong friend Jason Mewes and geek out over seeing a true-to-life cinematic parademon on screen. All his other issues aside, Kevin willed himself to extract joy out of something as small as that. And on the Suicide Squad red carpet, Smith talked about his determination to love Batman v Superman. Your opinion on Batman v Superman changed from viewing to viewing a little bit. Uh, a little. I've now watched that movie like eight more times since it came out on right. home video. I keep watching it over and over again. The ultimate cut now? Yes. The longer one. I just keep watching it over and over again. My wife is just like, why do you keep watching this? Because I'm like, I'm going to love it one day. The more I watch it, I'm absolutely going to fall in love with this. (laughs) And in a sense, it's as simple as that. You can choose to love. It's a concept perhaps a little more alien to the romantic notion of spontaneous infatuation blossoming into true love, but it should be no stranger to any long-time real-world relationship hard fought for and worked at. Kevin is determined to love Batman v Superman. 
So given his daughter's namesake and her obsession with the movie and her moving tears over getting Harley's bat, I was really curious how Kevin would react to the film. He had many great and glowing things to say about Suicide Squad, but the part that stood out to me was this. What did I think about it? I thought it was dope. I think he did a great job. This is gonna, I don't want this to sound dismissive. This movie was like a hot topic come to life. It was dope, man. It felt young and I'm like 46 years old, man. I felt like a kid watching this movie. It just felt young, had this energy to it and stuff. I, you know, I ain't dismissing the critics and whatnot, and I'm not saying they don't get it by any stretch of the imagination. I could see whereas maybe this movie might not be for everyone, and no movie is, but this movie's for the youth, man. Oh my God, this movie felt young and vibrant and stuff like that while being like dark and twisted and emo at the same time felt like a rebellious teenager but one that you wanted to be around i enjoyed the hell out of it we'll get into demographics a little later but i want you to make a note of that and hold on the second insights came from david ayer first presenting suicide squad as just a fun summer movie with a good heart on twitter and there's nothing wrong with just having you know a big fun summer movie then in his Empire interview. It's kind of fascinating how the film's getting eviscerated by so many of the critics. And it's fascinating because in a lot of ways, this is kind of an art movie. And I know just saying that is going to provoke incredible howls of, of outrage out there. But it's really this anarchic punk rock art movie. And between those three things, I feel like it clicked for me. This isn't a movie for me, directed at me, and that's okay. If I could embrace that, I could and would enjoy it for what it is rather than what I wanted it to be. So let's talk about fun and a good heart. Let's talk about anarchy and art films, demographics, and finally, we'll wrap up with punk rock. That's our roadmap for the rest of this episode. Starting with just a fun summer movie with a good heart, it's basically a call to lower and change expectations. John Ostrander summed up the backlash as expecting Nolan's The Dark Knight, and I admit that that's where my highest hopes might have dared to dream. To me, The Suicide Squad is about as subversive as you can get in a mainstream comic book universe that exists simultaneously with the Justice League. So, given the groundedness of the other films, their gravity, seriousness, and solemnity, I was expecting something even darker, edgier, and confronting. Not necessarily a good heart or fun. I'm not opposed to fun. I like fun. I'm just the kind of person that needs to say something like, I'm not opposed to fun. I like fun. Because it's not apparent otherwise. <laughs> and I absolutely hate fun as a metric for evaluation, but that's another topic for another time. I wouldn't be into comics if I didn't like fun, but taking things seriously and looking at them deeply and analytically is also fun for me, just not in the conventional sense. So I get that this film wasn't targeted at my expectations, and that's okay. It's not fair to go into your local pizzeria and expect a three Michelin star experience. It's just a pizza place. More evidence that this isn't targeted at me? Air references anarchy. Again, this was a good signal that it wasn't meant for me. I'm the guy that picks the paladin. I'm the guy that returns the shopping cart even if it's raining. I'm more square than Clark Kent or Steve Rogers. I'm a former computer scientist and programmer, and my bread and butter is law and order. I like logic, lists, elements, systems, breakdowns, and categories. I don't do chaos, disorder, and rebellion. I don't shop at Hot Topic, and I will never get a tattoo. This isn't necessarily for me, and that's okay. That's what Ayer's art movie comment 
element can mean. A key component of an art movie means being aimed at a niche audience rather than a mass market audience or mass appeal. That's a characteristic of critic-proof films, where there's a disconnect between the critical reception and the adoration of some fans. The unexpected success, despite the reviews, shows that there is a niche audience, a target, that is really responding to this film. A divide between a target audience and general critics isn't anything new. Look at stoner comedies, Nicholas Sparks, Tyler Perry, or Transformer movies. All subgenres, subcultures, or niche audiences that show up, support, and enjoy the film despite harsh critical reception. In fact, critics could be considered their own niche audience. We know this when we deem a film Oscar bait, something meant to appeal to critics and the Academy first and foremost with mass appeal as a secondary concern. Here's writer Jacqueline Woodson on selecting her critics. Some people will trust a workshop. I, for one, have been in workshops and I haven't always trusted them because a lot of times I'm the only person of color in it. So suddenly I'm having to explain to a lot of people who are not people of color my experience and having to justify my experience. And that's not helpful to me. In law, we hold up the jury of peers as an ideal, as a mechanism for limiting negative bias and increasing empathy. We don't want completely disconnected, unrelated, or even prejudiced people handing down judgments. We take issue if jury members are excluded simply for sharing the same skin color as held in Batson v. Kentucky. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. Four months later, the court delivers its verdict, and in a 7-2 decision, Batson wins. The court found that the prosecutor's actions for sure violated the 14th Amendment. They said racial discrimination of any kind in jury selection is not allowed. Cue Dan Rather. The high court ruled today it is illegal. Totes illegal. Even on a peremptory challenge, it is illegal for a lawyer to reject a juror on the basis of race. So a fair evaluation must come from the intended peers. Well, who showed up for Suicide Squad? Why is Suicide Squad breaking box office records for August in its opening week? Well, let's take a quick look into the demographics, mostly according to post-track numbers courtesy of Mariah Doty. Will Smith was a big draw. 23% of those surveyed say that they came for him. African-American and Hispanics made up a huge 41% of the audience. For context or comparison, that number is about 36% for Civil War. The next biggest single cast member draw was Margot Robbie at 21%, just two points shy of Will. And Suicide Squad's audience was an incredible 41% female. Again, for context, Civil War's female audience, 34%. So Will drew in 23%, Margot drew in 21%, but the biggest draw was the diverse ensemble cast at 34%. And 81% of African Americans and Hispanics gave Suicide Squad a positive score. Lastly, looking at age demographics, according to CinemaScore, those under 35 overwhelmingly rated the film positively with an A- and go under age 18, and they score with an A. And you can start to recall some of Kevin Smith's insights. And this is not lost on the filmmakers. I mean, look, for me, you know, I grew up in South L.A. I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood. I was the only white boy. That's how diverse it was. It's the world I know. It's the world I live in. But it's also the world we all live in. And I feel like on screen, kids need to see people that look like them. My wife is Latina. You know, my kids are Latino. So it's important for them to see faces like theirs on the screen. And this is also, it's a global business these days. And we need to evolve with the times. But it comes naturally to me. But I think in diversity is strength. And we need to be a lot more inclusive in film. We really need to work on that and in our world in general. 
According to the data visualization company Graphique, Suicide Squad is the most diverse superhero cast yet. I'll put links in the show notes to their graphs and their analysis, but in ranking cast diversity, Suicide Squad comes in at 42%, followed by Guardians at 33%, Dawn of Justice at 25%, then Civil War at only 20%. The website comments that according to the 2015 census, the U.S. population is 62% white, not including Hispanics and Latinos, which quote, by this measure, the world of Suicide Squad mirrors the racial and ethnic diversity of today's U.S. society, end quote. A second chart breaks down the racial and ethnic composition of that diversity, showing the non-white representation wasn't just blacks or African-American. So that's the diversity of the film and the audience that showed up to support it. But what about the critics? Well, like with jury selection, matching peer demographics does not mean automatic acquittal, the inability to convict, or the absence of sound judgment. A black jury member doesn't suddenly lose all ability to reason, judge, or decide just because they share skin color. A black jury member can still convict a black defendant. In law, we can and do raise an eyebrow if the defendant is black and the prosecution excludes every potential jury member that's black. We should. We know it's wrong. So let's look at our jury box of 54 top critics on Rotten Tomatoes judging Suicide Squad. I'm sure this illustration would be even more stark with all the critics, but I just wanted to make the point with the sample that I had time to look at. Remember that Suicide Squad's audience was 41% African American and Hispanics. Out of 54 critics, two are black, one Hispanic, 5.5% compared to 41%. Suicide Squad's audience was 41% female. Out of 54 critics, six were women, 11% compared to 41%. Finally, remember that those age 35 and younger and 18 and younger were overwhelmingly positive about this film. Well, 45 out of 54 critics, that's 83%, were confirmed over the age of 35 with their average age well above that. And just one critic could be confirmed as age 29 with eight unknown. In June of this year, Dr. Lausen published a study on the gender demographics of Rotten Tomatoes for San Diego State University. The study found, unsurprisingly, that women reviewers were dramatically underrepresented. I'll put a link in the show notes, but one of the most interesting graphs was the gender breakdown of reviews by genre. Quote, the greatest discrepancy between male and female writers occurred for science fiction features. Men penned 84% and women 16% of the reviews in this genre. The greatest parody occurred for romance. Men wrote 57% and women 43% of these reviews reviews, end quote. What happens in film a lot is the male voices, and by voice I mean the character, the depth of the character, the performance, the way the character is resolved and executed, and the arc of the character is incredibly developed, and often the women are underdeveloped. And in this case, I wanted women that had voices and had power and were powerful as women. And, you know, as a father of two daughters, I think it's important to give them examples that you can speak up in the world and you can have a viewpoint. Again, this isn't a comment on innocence or guilt. The defendant may or may not be guilty at the end of the day. This is about who you choose to trust to evaluate that. If the demographics are skewed from who is in the film, who the film is for, and who shows up for the film, do you put your trust in a jury with completely different demographics? 
Moreover, if there's an institutional pressure to be a certain type of person and a certain type of way in order to be a part of that institution, well, even those few examples of diversity within the institution may not reflect the larger ideological diversity of real-world demographics. I'm not declaring that we start hashtag RT so white. Not at all. That's not my point. I'm saying understanding the institution allows you to give it the appropriate weight. I mean, why did I get into comics in the first place? Did I think that reading comics was going to make me popular? Did I read comics because they were seen as high art, viewed as literary and respectable? Did I look to old white men to validate my enjoyment of superheroes? No, if anything, they were the ones that were telling me I was reading junk, that my taste was terrible, the art subpar, and the stories infantile. Right or wrong, did I love my comics less? Of course not. leads us into our last topic, punk rock. Again, more proof that this wasn't meant for me. I'm not a music guy, much less a punk rock guy. But I think I'm the kind of dad who sees how into video games his kid is and then takes an interest because my kid is into it. Not just dismiss it as a waste of time because I have no idea. And note, I don't literally mean video games. I mean whatever the next video games are going to be for my kids and me. So I looked into the history of punk rock and it's fascinating and I can totally see parallels. And I enjoyed the fact that Suicide Squad challenged me in this way to expand my horizons. I'm totally unqualified, but I'm going to pull clips from Punk's progenitors to make some points and show how Suicide Squad attempts or achieves the same kind of ethos. We'll see that Punk is universal yearning, sincere, truthful, and real. It's rebellious, but diverse, accepting, and open. It's improvisational and inspired, and there's effort, blood, sweat, and tears, and... In the end, it's commercial. So in my ignorance, I always saw punk rock as angry and antagonistic rebellion. But there's almost an inherent innocence in its origins. Here's Jonathan Richman, oft credited as the first proto-punk. We'll share a love under suburban rain. To me, uh, rock and roll was about stuff that was natural anyway. Was it about drugs and space? About boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff. And act like a true girl. Oh. See, I used to walk to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I used to go to the room where they would keep the paintings by Cezanne, see? Not because I understood anything about the paintings of Cezanne, but that's where all the BU girls hung out, Boston University. They had the big suede boots coming up to here, and they had the long hair and the brown suede jacket. Ooh, and I was very impressed. So, I just hung around there. And I figured, boy. If I had a girlfriend, I could understand these paintings and I could see right through them. 
That's completely relatable, right? That's that same universal yearning that everyone has. A sort of innocent, magical thinking that love is going to be the gateway to miraculous insight and understanding. Ayer intended to infuse the story of his characters with these same universal yearnings. At the end of the day, they're just people. And yes, they're the baddies. And, you know, they may have made a few mistakes in life. But that's what this movie's about. It's about redemption. It's about who decides if you throw people away or not. And they do discover that they can have all the things that everybody wants, which is friendship and family and love and the opportunity to do some good in the world. Yes, these are the bad guys, but they have good hearts. They're good people inside and they just want what we all want, which is to have some kind of a decent life despite their past sins. They're bad guys, but they're not evil. They have good hearts. They may not even know that themselves starting out. And that's what they discover along the way. They can overcome the past. They can join together. They can bond together and form this family and do incredible things things together. The fun of this was seeing them come together as a family and that's what this movie's really about is it's about bad guys who have good hearts who form this team that does some miraculous things. So there's that same kind of wish for greatness, for miracles that come with the yearning. Like love is going to make sense of art, the squad finding family multiplies their power. That universal yearning lets us identify with monsters and see them in us. The cast understood this. Here's Karen Fukuhara. It's nice to see a set of characters out there where people can relate to. You know, we're not perfect and we are everyday people and I think David really did a great job of portraying that. In terms of sincerity, punk was a reaction to prog rock and wanting to return to something more raw. Narrator Liev Schreiber, then Lenny Kay of the Patti Smith Group, talking about returning to the roots of rock. Songs like Roadrunner reminded people of an earlier age when the music on the radio was short, fun, and above all easy to play. A time when the so-called garage bands of the 60s had had more enthusiasm than ability. A time when rock and roll had been fun. Um, I often think of uh, garage music as the real reason why people want to rock and roll in the first place, which is just pure desire. The garage bands became more important to their style in the early 70s because rock and roll had gotten very complicated. Progressive rock, a sense that rock was an adult medium, uh, a sense that complexity and song cycles and instrumental prowess and musicianship were the driving force. The fact that you could play three chords and get up on a stage within a week was being lost. So Ayer injects that element of desire and comes at the challenge as a three-chord artist, writing, character, and direction. Ayer's never handled something so big, something so effects-driven, something under so much scrutiny. But we don't need comic movies to be products of producers or the same standard directors. Nonetheless, this wasn't so much about technical merit or Hollywood math. Warner Brothers didn't have Suicide Squad on their agenda. They weren't shopping for scripts or looking for a director. No, Ayer came to them. Ayer 
pitch them with nothing more than a punk rock-like desire, that fire in his eyes, and that passion to pitch something unconventional. I wanted to do a movie that would challenge me as a director and challenge me visually. I've never done a fantasy movie before. Everything I've done has been very realistic and very naturalistic. And I love actors. I love working with actors. I love helping actors achieve performance. And I'm a writer first, so I enjoy writing roles for actors. And that's what is a lot different in this film, is the characters have a real emotional life and an emotional journey. Let's analogize rock to comics. If we consider sequential art the most elemental of comics, cave paintings on a wall, anyone can do it. The rule for the Ramones was simple execution. The Ramones took Jonathan Richmond's simple guitar sound even further. The rule was no more than three chords per song. Tina Weymouth and David Byrne of Talking Heads. The biggest thrill was to kind of be all thumbs and not to be capable or technically proficient, but to be a bit all thumbs. Punk wasn't a musical style, or at least it shouldn't have been. And to many people, it turned into a, a particular musical style. It was more a kind of do-it-yourself, anyone-can-do-it kind of attitude. If you only play two notes on the guitar, you, you can figure out a way to make a song out of that. And that's, that's what it was about. Yet, until recently, superhero comics weren't taken seriously at large. They were disposable and juvenile. They were even disreputable. Stan Lee often tells the story that he came by that name because he always intended to save his real name, Stanley Leibowitz, for when he would write the great American novel and become a real literary writer. If you analogize comic books as rock and more literary works as classical music, then you can analogize comic book movies to rock genres. If Marvel is polished pop, homogeneously generated for the masses with little intention of ever challenging the formula or convention, then Nolan and Snyder are closer to progressive rock or prog rock, trying to take a base genre and increase the technical merit and classical complexity to defy conventional limitations of the genre, exceed and confront expectations that otherwise dismiss the genre as more simplistic and unsophisticated. Not that it always succeeds, but that's the lofty ambition. And then there's punk, something easy to play and sing about emotion and improvisation and energy more than technical proficiency or long, complicated songs. By the mid-70s, 20 years after its birth, rock music had started to take itself very seriously. In Britain, the predominant trend was for progressive rock, performed in vast stadiums and released as concept albums. If it wasn't at least 20 minutes long, it wasn't worth playing. In America... Many of the successful musicians of the 60s had by now settled into comfortable Beverly Hills lifestyles, playing music for the all-powerful FM radio. At its most powerful, rock and roll had appeared to offer a way of life, yet the lavish trappings of mid-70s rock culture suggested it was in danger of becoming just another leisure industry. It needed an injection of new energy. And it got it. I don't think anyone questions the injection of energy Suicide Squad has added. Whether you like the film or not, these characters have become household names that will be beloved by some for a generation and beyond because of this film. And that comes from Ayer's courage. I mean, do you think there's a danger that superhero movies will become a bit of a poison chalice? Like, you know, only, only the brave will take one on. Uh, 
Yeah, but doesn't that make it more fun? If you're up for a challenge, again, it's blood sport out here. You know, you're entering the arena of combat. So only the brave terror tread, I guess. You look at an established system, you look at the way things work, you look at your own technical expertise, and you look at the risks. But instead of being intimidated and slinking away, instead of conforming to the system, and instead of letting three chords hold you back, you say, I'd rather die standing than live on my knees. It's not like like air doesn't know fear. I want the film to connect to the fans because that fan base is important, very important. And if you don't earn the love of your fans, you're in trouble. That's important. But, you know, as a filmmaker and as someone who loves the craft of filmmaking and as, as a director, you know, I feel so protective of the actors. And I will feel like that I failed my actors if... Uh, <laughs> They're getting bad reviews. It's scary. The actors had a lot of fun. I had to, I had to kind of be down and focus on uh, on the day and getting everything everything moving. You know, as a director, it's terrifying to work on something that big. If you think about all the work you have to do and all the decisions you have to make, you can get stage fright. So I would just take it a day at a time, just try and get my work done for that day. But Ayer went for it, and we got a Suicide Squad movie. It's so easy not to do. But what I see in punk is do it anyway. And inspiration for this Harley Quinn, Debbie Harry, was just a waitress, but got up on stage regardless of sexism. Other women with punk attitudes followed Patti Smith onto the CBGB stage, including a waitress from Max's Kansas City. The thing that, that was really frustrating in the, in the 70s was trying to play an instrument in a band. And I remember going to jam sessions and being told, Oh, you can't play your girl. You know, and that really hurt. <laughs> David Byrne was just a college grad. It, it almost seems as if I shoved myself on stage out of some desperate need. They put themselves out there, not with a professional veneer of artificiality, but as themselves, honestly and vulnerable. Here's Tina again. We thought, why not sing about what we're really thinking? We don't feel like heroes. We don't feel like rock stars. Why don't we uh, be honest about this? And it seemed to work. It was a, a gratifying thing to go out there and express all your insecurity while you're on a stage. You heard Ayer's fears, his passion for this project, his investment into it, his protectiveness of it. There's a similar vulnerability there. And we respond to vulnerability because it's real, it's genuine, it's sincere. Like unpolished punk music and unassuming looks. Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine. The hippie culture is what we wanted to replace. It, would, it failed. It was pathetic. All these leftover people trying to pretend that uh, handing out flowers was going to... Pete Nixon, <laughs> you know. The New York Dolls and the sort of glamour groups had long hair. We decided to forget that, you know, and the costumes and all that. We hated all this stuff. It seemed like a, like not even funny pretense to us. And um, so we just sort of wore street clothes. Yeah, we sure didn't look like any band in the world. I mean, we're the only band that had short hair probably in the world. <laughs> and everybody worshipped us for it. They'd crawl into CPGBs. They were stacked up like these tires. So thirsty were they for reality. Air 2 
wanted to capture that. I wanted to take a fantastic world and make it real. And we did that by, you know, if these were real characters in our lives, in our worlds, what would they be like? And a lot of it had to do with just the psychology of the actors, the psychology of the roles, the way I wrote the roles, so that they felt like real people on a journey and not just actors posing in costume. Later, we'll hear how Ayer worked on the aesthetic of Suicide Squad. But given how out there and outlandish the characters were and could be, it's incredible how it all fit together believably in this world. Amanda Waller could stand among these monsters and it looked right and real. Not once was I ever taken out of the scene because of Harley's colors. I had no hesitation believing Flash and Boomerang came from the same universe. Batman descending on Deadshot and Joker was completely natural. It's easy to take for granted, to assume that it'll work, but Ayer put in the work and it shows by the fact that you don't even notice it. Ayer guided the production to chase the real and I think he struck an artful balance between graphic novel and reality. Again and again, Harley Quinn is lauded as a cartoon character brought to life, a sentiment shared by Debbie Harry. We were really sort of rebelling against the flatness of everything. We wanted to have sort of a really sort of fun thing and I sometimes felt like a cartoon figure. It was this sort of eclectic mix and openness to experimentation that was seen as part of the strength of CBGB's growing punk scene. Openness to experimentation was a threat to the establishment. But Houston, Detroit, and Pittsburgh had not yet heard Talking Heads, or indeed any other punk band. One thing about America, America always played it safe and, and always plays it safe, you know. And so they were, they were threatened by the punk. The record companies were very afraid of it, and, and it was a really verboten, you know, they just would not play it on the radio. Radio in America, anyway, FM radio, had, had this idea that they only played good music, you know, by good musicians, and that punk was not good music by good musicians. It was like kids making a lot of noise or something. To most people in radio, it didn't sound as good as the Eagles or Linda Ronstadt, and so it didn't get played. Middle America was perhaps too affluent too comfortable for punk's aggressive sound. America wasn't ready, so the scene picked up in the UK. John Lydon found himself the spokesman for a generation of bored British teenagers. You start off in school and they take your soul away. They take your brains away. You're not allowed to have an opinion that differs from theirs. The Sex Pistols became known for inappropriate public outbursts, maybe a little like Ayer's controversial comment against Marvel. The Sex Pistols were branded as public enemy number one, but found their audience. God Save the Queen was going to be a massive record. Even though it wasn't being played on the radio, even though you couldn't see the group play, enough records were being sold to make it number one. But the number one for the first time in the history of the record industry was a black mark because they refused to print the name of the Sex Pistols or the name God Save the Queen. The divide between establishment and audience acceptance echoes with Suicide Squad. With respect to the critical panning, Ayer says, In a lot of ways, I feel like it's sort of the old guard just telling me to, to stay off their grass. As a concept, Suicide Squad is rebellious. Bad guys as heroes, minor characters instead of major ones, levity and humor against the dark and serious slates. In execution, the film defies standard Hollywood demographics with its diversity and female leads. Punk 2 Drew from Diversity, Paul Simonon of The Clash, Don Letts, Ari Up of The Slits, and Lenny Kay. When The Clash first started, it was a strange period because, I mean, you can walk down Portobello 
and you can hear a bit of reggae out the speaker over here. And then over here they're playing Latin music or further down there's rockabilly. Quite strange if you stand in the middle and hear all these uh, influences all at the same time. The sound that would affect the clash the most was reggae. And obviously they were all punks. And I was the DJ and um, I lived in a house with about four other, four or five other Rasta guys. When I got the job, they all laughed at me. Ha ha, Don Letts is going to work with those crazy punk rockers. And the funny thing was, it was so early in the days of punk rock that there weren't actually any punk records to play at that time. So I had to play something, and that happened to be my first love, which was reggae. And it seemed that the punk rockers could relate to it, I guess because it was the only rebellious sound around at the time. The slits were very inspired by reggae, that's why we were different. But in general, the attitude about reggae related to it because it's the rebelliousness, the utter rebelliousness, because we were just rebellious by nature. Ariana became so engrossed in it that, you know, she had longer dreadlocks than me and spoke um, Jamaican heavier than me, and it became quite disconcerting because she was from Germany. Not all punks actually went to Jamaica but increasingly it came to be a powerful force in their music. We really loved reggae music. Yeah, we took a lot of nourishment from it on many levels. We've already covered this for Suicide Squad. Diversity not only supported the story, but the box office. Do you feel like this is the audience is saying that it's time for more female superhero films? I, I absolutely think that. I mean, you know, in this case, I have Harley Quinn. I have a female villain, a female bad guy in the film, and Amanda Waller, who is the good guy, ostensibly, but is really, in a lot of ways, the alpha wolf of this insane wolf pack. And I think it's just time for more diversity in film and time to recognize recognize the power of women characters in comics. Like much music making, punk had an improvisational or inspired element, coming more from an unknown muse than mechanics. Psycho Killer I wrote, um, not seriously. I think I was writing it just to see if I could write a song. It was always very exciting for us to do something that we didn't quite understand. Ayer also honored improvisation, happy accidents, and inspiration. I wrote the script, you rehearsed it with the actors, and then a lot of it was on set where you make these little discoveries, I'd throw a line at them, or they'd come up with something on their own. And it's those little accidents, those little fun moments that kind of end, seem to end, always end up in the movie. Jared Leto actually mentioned, so I asked him, like, how much improvising do you get to do or do you stay to the script? And he's like, the Joker just does whatever. The Joker does do pretty much whatever. There, there's scripted pages for him, and it's like, Jared, just keep it in this neighborhood. That would kind of help me out because I got to cut this thing together at some point. But I mean, he really did lose himself in this character. And what a courageous thing to do as an actor because it's been done so well in the past, but can't just lock the Joker up away forever. You know, you had to take him out and we updated him for 2016. I did have my moment. There's an incredible energy. Everybody came together and it really felt like a special moment. And you get caught up in it. And it was really, incredibly memorable. That said, that doesn't mean that the musician's or Ayer's movie was flighty or arrived fully formed. Quite the opposite. For whatever punk lacked in technical skill, they had to make up for in effort. Literal blood, sweat, and tears. So I was playing to the point where my fingers were bleeding, and I remember that people would get very excited when when the blood would start running down my pick guard. That's how I actually first learned how to play. Look, I wake up in the morning and just play till like my 
fingers were like bleeding. Oh, like one little bit for like five hours. The cast of Suicide Squad would also shed blood and suffer injury for their film. Was anybody injured during any of the physical scenes? Mild injuries. Mild, yeah. When you're 47, no injury is a mild injury anymore. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I, uh, I, I tore my calf. Uh, a couple of weeks and we're sparring and I stepped back to throw a shot and my calf popped and people could hear it and everybody was like, ooh, there's that, that's, that's, that's not good. Whatever that sound was is not a good sound. Will soldiered on and then I think three seconds later, Joel blew out his calf. Yeah, his Joel, yeah. Exact same. It's just, you know, yeah. I was just trying to show sympathy. Sympathy, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was like a sympathy pregnancy. Solidarity yeah. injury. I don't, what do you got to say, pregnancy? Oh, yeah, that makes it weird. Oh, yeah, it was awkward. That was awkward. Sorry, we should move on. We should just keep going. Margo, what was the hardest part for you, like, other than doing everything we had to do, except you did it in heels? I thought I broke my rib at one point, but I actually just... I actually tore the muscles off the rib instead of breaking it, but it was fine. It was towards the end. planted coming off the chop. Oh, my gosh. That hurt so much. Middle of the take. Got up, knees raw, like palms I bleeding. I fell from like this high up, straight on. onto oh. my knees on the bitumen. Yeah. It was so painful. That was no, and then she stands up. Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't cry in front of all those people. I was like, I'm good, I'm good. Um, but the hardest part wasn't the physical side, actually. That was all, you know, that's a mechanical side and it's challenging, but it's rewarding and fun. And the emotional stuff was definitely more difficult. Exposing my most vulnerable sides in front of a room full of strangers at that point, that's, that was incredibly hard. Trying to figure out the dynamic between Harley and Joker and why she is so devoted to th- this guy that tries to kill her occasionally. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like a few things like that. It took a while to get my head around. Ayer put them through intense physical and psychological preparation for their roles. Well, I needed them to come together as friends, as a group, to come together as a squad. And it's really no different, I think, than what you experience in a military boot camp or in a sports team. Is very intense training, very intense work, but also very intense emotional work. And I love actors and I love acting. We did a lot of rehearsals. We did a lot of training, the martial arts training. I had them fight each other. All of these things sort of served to bring them together. The scariest part of making this movie was that if they didn't come together as a family, the movie wasn't going to work. But they did, and it does. And and the energy they have off-screen is the same energy they have on-screen. They're going to be lifelong friends out of this. Every actor sort of had their own program tailored to them to help them on their journey. But also part of the process is, is the rehearsal process, having them work together. We rehearse pretty much every day. And sometimes we would just cover the same scene all week long and just really drill down and really build that trust. You know, we put Joel through like a mini boot camp along with some of the other actors to get emotionally inside the world of, again, of a trained military officer. So for me, you can't give the actors too much. You can't rehearse too much because no matter how much you rehearse, it's still going to be a surprise on the day. It's still going to be a surprise on set. But that's where the magic comes from. And that's where you then get the freedom to start ad-libbing and adding the humor and adding the life because now they're in character. They know how these characters think. They're in their skin. And so now they can start speaking confidently as these characters. I was really anxious during the initial weeks of rehearsal as they slowly started to break the ice and bond. And then once we're shooting, I look around and they're always hanging out together on set. 
off camera. And that isn't the case normally. Normally everyone pops back to their trailers, everybody disappears. Or if they're not around, I find out they're all in base camp in someone's trailer. Like Joel's trailer seemed to be a big crowd point. Jai's trailer, they're always together. They seem to become inseparable. I go on Instagram and I'm like, what are you guys doing? What's this, you know, every weekend they're hanging out together. So they, they became lifelong friends out of this. They became this posse and they became lifelong friends. Look, they went all in. I mean, everybody went all in. It was a total commitment. And through that commitment, you know, they came together. It's almost like being in the military. You know, I was in the service and it's like boot camp kind of bonds everybody and unites everybody. And that's what really I felt. Ayer himself had to do and did the research. Gazzarella's Joker, the Joker comic, was definitely an inspiration. That was sort of a deep dive into the Joker psychology. Killing Joke, of course, which is a classic Joker graphic novel. But really, I went back to the very first Joker comic in 1942 and sort of looked at what is the essence here because he was born fully formed into the world. And at the end of the day, he's just an insane gangster. Ayer had to captain the look of production with constant repeated testing. We were after a very different look for the movie and we wanted a lot of color and a lot of saturation and every frame of the movie is really designed. The colors, the paint on the walls, the lights we used, the fabric of the wardrobe, everything had to work together and we tested everything together to get our look. It took a lot of work. We wanted it to feel like a comic book or a graphic novel. Ayer had to find shots and discover the film. Well, you start out with fight choreography and the actors run the scene, run the choreography again and again and again. And then, you know, I sit down with my cinematographer and we just start looking at it. We start finding shots and figure out what pieces we're going to need to tell that physical story. And it's one of the funnest parts of filmmaking is when such a huge action scene comes together and is in the final picture and works so well. I'm barely scratching the surface of all the care, effort, passion, and personal cost that goes into being the the writer-director for this film. It's an expense that can drive one mad, like in the movie Pink Floyd, The Wall, a semi-autobiographical account of how the music upends his life. The scene where Pink completely destroys his hotel room served as inspiration for Joker's circle of spoils, or what Ayer calls Joker's knife circle, painstakingly put together by Ayer himself. You know, the Joker knife circle, as we call it, I uh, came to set really early that day and spray-painted all the ha-ha-has on the wall and then laid out all the knives. There's knives and roses and guns and glasses and beer bottles and cell phones. It took me a couple hours to lay all that stuff out. I kind of did it myself. You don't have a person for that? A we have designer? a lot of people for that, but it's kind of, when you're trying to do something insane like that, it's hard to explain. It was, it was a pretty elaborate setup, but you know, I love, I love detail. I love getting my hands dirty. I love doing things like that. That's the kind of compulsive commitment that makes this film possible. Only Ayer didn't lose it like Joker or Pink. I have no doubt that he put everything he could into it, but at the end of the day, both Punk music and the movie are commercial enterprises. They still need to sell. As the end of the 70s approached, it seemed as if punk had failed in its attempt to gain acceptance in middle America. For the original bands in New York, it was time to change if they were to survive. It occurred to us, well, you know, our songs are so weird. Maybe we should do a cover song on our next album. Maybe the radio will like it. And uh, sure enough, the, the radio did like it. And... Uh, I think it was our first top 40 single. The Ramones went into the studio with Phil Spector, who forced them at gunpoint to add strings. 
The Ramones were held at gunpoint by their producer, Phil Spector. Despite rumor and speculation and statements after the fact, we don't know with absolute certainty what happened as the film was being edited, tested, and marketed. We know that Robbie found it challenging to take direction that involved verbally destroying her castmates after she had bonded with them. And Boomerang has the line, Why is it always a knife fight every single time you open your mouth? Given Harley's psychoanalytical background, we can only imagine how deeply some of those lines might have cut. But those cuts were cut to sand off some of the edges of these characters. We don't get disgusted by killer croc vomiting. We don't get more racist or sexist remarks. We don't get a darker or more disturbing abusive relationship between Harley and the Joker. And I understand. I really do. I can understand not wanting to fight people over a Superman with flaws or a Batman who has fallen anymore. And so our serial killers were softened. The slant is soul instead of subversion. But look, I had a lot of fun making the movie and the cast had a brilliant time and and, and they're absolutely incredible together. I mean, there's this chemistry and this warmth and, and, and there is a lot of uh, a good at the core of this movie and the message of redemption. I mean, it, it's it's I'm so proud of it. And that can work in an Ocean Eleven's kind of way. I've been so thoroughly charmed by this cast and their charisma and their lifelong bond. I want to see them on screen together, having fun, almost regardless of the film. I want to see the Rat Pack or Clooney's celebrity friends or this cast up there. Because whether it comes across in the movie or not, Air has succeeded in creating a family. A weird, wacky, dysfunctional one, but still a family. And anyone who can do that just to make a film has my respect. I want to believe that Air ultimately ran out of time. It was difficult because it took a lot of work to get to that point. And every film is a journey. And the film you start making is not the film you end up with in the end. You know, I'm very happy with the movie and I'm very happy with it now. But along the way, we made a lot of discoveries. You're always learning lessons. And, you know, there's a saying that you never finish a movie. It's abandoned. And in this case, it was kind of ripped out of uh, my arms because I would have kept working on it forever, I think. For better or worse, the theatrical cut was more commercial. When I first met Blondie, they were a very dark, very strange, psychedelic surf punk band. One of the first songs they played me was Heart of Glass. And Heart of Glass at that point sounded uh, like, Once I had a love, and it was a gas. It was a reggae song. Soon turned out, and Heart of Glass. And I said, well, this is a great song, but, you know, Americans don't buy uh, reggae. There's no way they're going to buy it in reggae form. So let's try and change it. And uh, the way we presented the record was palatable to radio and consequently palatable to the American audience and the world audience. It all seemed very far away from CBGB's. However, with time, punk would be embraced. You have to bear in mind that they just come out of the Vietnam War, and the whole situation here was very, very different. Uh, America was in a economically a much, much better position than it is now. And it's funny that now that things are beginning to crumble and fall apart and their economy is going down the toilet, that they're turning a definite eye towards punk. Now they get it. I suppose, really, it's not the music for the overprivileged. But at the end of the 80s, long after it seemed that punk had died, something unexpected started to emerge from the American Northwest. Radio and a lot of the media in the States 
finally caught on about three or four years ago with the Nirvana phenomenon. There was a, a, a small film that uh, came out around then. It was a document of a tour of uh, Sonic Youth and Nirvana, and it was called 1990 or something, the year punk broke. And it was an accurate title because the, it's almost as if in the States, more than 10 years after the fact, finally the radio stations and the media and whatnot realized that something was going on. The uh, original groups, Clash and Sex Pistols and us and all, most of us had long since disappeared. But in a sense, we'd finally succeeded through these other, other groups. I hope time is kind to air. Maybe a little distance, maybe a different climate, maybe another audience, maybe as this cinematic universe continues, or maybe he gets another shot. I want to see what he does next. I want him to achieve his intentions. And it is kind of shocking that, you know, in in the in the uh, analysis critique, you know, media side, no one has really reverse engineered what what I'm really saying. <laughs> It might just not be time yet, but your audience hears you and your audience will try. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. I know this was a bit of an offbeat episode. I'm actually very interested in getting into the world building, the power sets, the motivations, but I think I might wait on home release for that. Instead, this was maybe a therapeutic dark night of the soul. Thank you, David Ayer, for teaching me that term of art. And even if I'm not rushing out to listen to more punk music, it was so fun learning about it. The reminder to challenge myself not to just indulge in topics that I already like, for that alone, Suicide's squad was well worth it for me i can't wait to dig deeper into it and appreciate it more so thanks so much for listening if you like what you heard please review the show on itunes and subscribe i'm doc your dc films justice league universe apologist signing off see you next time you're the answer son Okay, I am well aware of the irony of almost no music in an episode heavily featuring musical history or culture, but I'm not a music guy. I like ideas, and to me, ideas are like music. So I've got two clips here with ideas which refrain things already in this episode. The first is my not-at-all-subtle suggestion that Ayer be allowed to refine Suicide Squad until he's truly satisfied. The integrity to do that means this magic can happen again. It means talented filmmakers approaching the WB with pitches that they are passionate about. It means actors signing up on projects even without a script. And it means unexpected surprises and successes not already pre-planned and slated. I won't wax on any more, here's Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history and our third mention of Cezanne in this show. And this episode is about one song. It's called The Deportees Club. I still have it on vinyl. It goes like this. Oh, God, it's awful. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome to Revisionist History, my podcast about things forgotten or misunderstood. This week, I want to go back to Elvis Costello in 1984. I should say, you don't have to know anything about Elvis Costello or even like his music to be interested in this story. I'm not talking about Deportees Club as a song but as a symbol. I'm interested in understanding how creativity works, and I've chosen Deportees Club as my case study for the purely arbitrary reason that I'm obsessed with it. And maybe, hopefully, 
You will be too once we're finished. At one point, Langer has his own band. Costello calls him up. And he said, oh, I'll come up and play a few songs before you go on. That's Langer, an absolutely delightful person. A few years pass, and Costello's record label decides they want to broaden his commercial appeal. And he's like, oh, I want it to sound real and like Bob Dylan or something, you know. The result is disastrous. I hated Goodbye Cruel World when I first heard it. And remember, I'm a massive Elvis Costello fan. And believe me when I say Goodbye Cruel World was unlistenable, especially Deportees Club. It was angry and loud and upsetting. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. In 1995, the album is re-released, and Elvis Costello writes in the liner notes, Congratulations, you've just purchased our worst album. Except, on that same re-release, Costello includes a new version of Deportees Club. One of the songs on the original album he hates so much. He gives it a new melody and plays it by himself, an acoustic version, shortens the title to Deportee, fiddles with some of the lyrics, and I become obsessed with it. I don't really know why, but it might be one of my favorite songs ever. Can we play it? Yeah. I'm in the pub with Clive Langer, the producer of the original awful version, Deportees Club. Strangely, he'd never heard the new, obscure, and amazing version of the song he produced so long ago. So I found it on my iPhone. In the air of the dirt nightclub bar, Standing in the fiberglass rooms, watching time stand You know, it sounds like he's found the song. But he didn't know at the time either that that's what the song... I mean, that's what's sort of fascinating, that yeah, neither of you in the moment... No, well, sometimes, you know, if it's not sounding right, maybe, I don't know, maybe we were making a record, but we were miles away. In the end, they, Elvis Costello and his producers, all thought they had put out something mediocre. What they didn't understand was that that mediocrity contained a bit of genius. It's just that it hadn't become genius yet. That's what I want to talk about. Time and iteration. What happens when genius takes its sweet time to emerge? This is something that gives a lot of people in the world pleasure, including me, and it almost didn't happen. If Elvis Costello doesn't go back and revisit Deportees Club, turn it into Deportee, we miss all that beauty. And the thought of that breaks my heart. There's a theory about creativity that I've always loved, that there are two very different trajectories that great artists seem to take. On the one hand, there are those who do their best work very early in their life. They tend to work quickly. They have very specific ideas that they want to communicate, and they can articulate those ideas clearly. They plan precisely and meticulously, then they execute. Boom. Gillenson calls them conceptual innovators. Picasso is the great example. He bursts on the scene in his early 20s and electrifies the art world at the turn of the last century. I think that someone like Picasso is who we have in mind when we think of that word genius. But Gillenson says, wait a minute. There's another kind of creativity. He calls it experimental innovation. Experimental innovators are people who never have a clear, easily articulated idea. 
They don't work quickly. When they start off, they don't really know where they're going. They work by trial and error. They do endless drafts. They're perpetually unsatisfied. It can take them a lifetime to figure out what they want to say. Who's a good example? Cezanne. Every bit as famous and important a painter as Picasso, maybe the greatest of the Impressionists who reinvent modern art in Paris in the late 1800s. But Cezanne's genius and Picasso's genius, they could not be more different. Talking to a man named John Elderfield, he's a Cezanne expert, and he took me to that gallery at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, easily a few billion dollars worth of paintings in one room. And it took only about five minutes to see experimental genius in action. So this is um, one of the many portraits of um, his wife that Cezanne made. She's sitting quietly, almost floating in the chair. And I think it's arguably one of the greatest portraits that he did. It's one of a series of four similar portraits. Elderfield says that the first two are a little smaller, looser, and then a third, much like the one we're looking at, but without any background painted in, just the figure. So he does essentially comes back to her four times and and then you think gets it right. Notice my assumption here was that if Cezanne did four versions, he must have been marching towards some kind of preordained conclusion. He has an idea and he's perfecting it. But that's not Cezanne. Standard practice is you do a sketch, work out the problems, do a finished version. Cezanne kind of starts in the middle. The fourth version of Cezanne's portrait of his wife is less finished than his second and third version. You can see he's been putting these brushstrokes down and not actually filling them all together. Cezanne didn't work according to some clear, linear plan. He basically just did versions, over and again, iteration after iteration, trying to stumble on something that seized his imagination. Many of Cezanne's paintings are unsigned because he doesn't want to admit to himself that he's done. He does portraits of his art dealer, and he makes him come for a hundred sitting. Normally for portraits, it would just be a five or something. Why does he need a hundred? Exactly. Cezanne was never finished. This is what David Gelson means by experimental genius. And Gelson points out that you can see this creative type in virtually every field. Herman Melville publishes Moby Dick when he's 32, writes it in a heartbeat. He's Picasso. Mark Twain publishes Huck Finn when he's in his late 40s, and it takes him forever because he ends up obsessively rewriting and rewriting the ending. He's Cezanne. Orson Welles does Citizen Kane when he's 24, Picasso. Alfred Hitchcock doesn't reach his prime until his mid-50s, after he spent his entire career making one thriller after another, playing with the genre over and over again. Cezanne. I don't think this crazy chain of happenstance matters so much with conceptual innovations. Paul Simon once says of Bridge Over Troubled Water, it came so fast, and when it was done, I said, where did that come from? It doesn't seem like me. The song came out perfectly. You can evaluate it right away. It doesn't require 15 years worth of twists and turns and random events. The world is really good at capturing conceptual creations. But if you're Cezanne, and the first version you produce is just a starting point, and you never know exactly what you're doing or why or whether your work is finished or not, the stars really do have to be aligned. The art of the experimental innovator is elusive. Why would he destroy his own canvases? You know, he had certain ideas about what he wanted to do and felt he actually never was actually getting to that point. Mm -hmm. There are other paintings done much later where he simply abandons them. And Picasso said that what actually engages us is Cezanne's doubt his uncertainty is absolutely just totally obsessive. Elvis Costello, Deportee, in its original flawed form. 
It comes out in 1984, very particular moment in pop music. The biggest album of that year was Michael Jackson's Thriller, pop music glossed to perfection. There's not a single stray note or emotion on that record. It's the antithesis of songs like Deportee. Along comes Costello. He wants to make an album in the midst of that cultural moment, and he's not interested in glossy perfection. Costello writes a series of dark, emotional, bitter songs, gritty and spare. Meanwhile, Langer and Winstanley have been brought on board to produce his. It's polished, exquisite. Every little bit was pondered over and, you know, thought about and put together very carefully. I mean, you had perfection. It was, we were trying to make pop perfection. You can imagine what happened when that world collides with Elvis Costello. Some of it just sounded like, so it wasn't a great experience, but we did it very quickly. It was a mess. Perfectionism in a hurry. That's how you get to the bitter words, congratulations, you've just bought my worst album. Goodbye Cruel World is not good. It's unlistenable. But it's what happens next that matters. You know how people always say, put your failures behind you, get on with your life, never look back? Elvis Costello does none of those things. Because he's Cezanne. He's not Picasso. He carries around a little black book where he writes draft after draft after draft of the songs he's thinking about. He changes lines in the middle of songs he's already recorded. He rearranges songs at different tempos or in different time signatures. He cannibalizes his own work, creating new songs out of old songs. And I don't know where to start or where to stop. He doesn't want to sign his name to the painting. And thank God there are people like him and Cezanne in this world, because without the obsessives and the perpetually dissatisfied and the artists who go back over and over again repainting what others see as finished, we would never have seen the beauty of Deportee. And you don't know where to start or where to stop All this pillow talk is nothing more than Finally talk and shop Our second and final clip comes from a Studio 360 interview with Marvel Comics writer Marjorie Liu. I think for a lot of readers, you know, wide-ranging readers, it's become hard not to take cognizance of comic books these days. It's just become an explosion of creativity. Liu is an old hand at comic writing. She spent years as one of the very few female writers working for Marvel Comics, where she wrote characters like the X-Men and Black Widow. She joined me to talk. It's interesting that you've chosen such a fantastical setting for a story that's so deeply rooted in your life and your own family history. What's interesting about that in hindsight is that when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, everything that I read, the protagonists were almost always white. And there was no mirror that I could hold up in front of me in which I could look into it and say, oh, I recognize that person. So if you had asked me 10 years ago, you know, what my books are about, I would have said, oh, I write about shapeshifters and psychics. But what I actually write about, the themes that have carried me through all these years, are those of people who have been othered. And in these books, these people who are othered are always looking for community and home and family and friendship and love. So you're playing with fire in a way. This whole approach is itself sort of imbued with this long tradition, you know, the traditions of which the other is supernatural. P. 
people of color, we're not always seen as, as quite human. I think about how Chinese or Asianness is often depicted in a sort of a heightened fantasy context where we are these mystical ninja shaman creatures that are imbued with like fantastic Asian powers. It's a fantasy of what Asia is. Now, what I'm doing is I'm not engaging in sort of the Orientalist tropes that we're accustomed to in the West. I'm writing like a fantasy novel, you know, a graphic novel that is set in Asia. And as someone who's actually aware of any possible tropes that are out there, it's my job to either avoid them or subvert them. Now, the other striking thing about Monstrous is a sense of a matriarchy. People who seem to be ruling things are all women. There are men, but they're mainly subaltern. <laughs> Our hero is a woman, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the inverse of the usual comic book formula. Well, why not? I always found the Smurfs really weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you think about the Smurfs, and there's one female Smurf, and there's like a whole village of male Smurfs. That's kind of weird. Now that you mention. Yeah. And I just think about a lot of the popular culture that I grew up with, uh, whether it was film or television, you would see a bunch of dudes and there might be one woman. That's not real life. And I thought, okay, well, why not just reverse this without comment and write a story in which it's all women having adventures and being the ones in charge. I wonder if some of our listeners might be surprised to discover that you're taking on these ambitious ideas in the form of a comic. And at its heart, a series like the X-Men is really about prejudice and ultimately equality. Yes, the X-Men embody this beautiful idea that inclusion isn't just a great thing. Inclusion is necessary to the survival of us all. It's interesting because even though that these are the themes that the X-Men have carried, we don't we don't really necessarily see that playing out in the creators themselves who are writing the X-Men. It's a theme, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a practice. <laughs> An atmosphere of sexism? Do we find that in the industry? Do we find it in Comic-Cons? Yes, yes. Two double yeses to that. I'm working in an industry in which at the two mainstream companies, DC and Marvel, there are very, 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 very few um, female creators. For years and years and years, I would have girls, young women coming up to me saying, I want to write comics. But everyone tells me that women can't write comics. And I'd be like, okay, well, that's just BS. That is an establishment trying to protect their privilege. But I have been told by top editors at Marvel that women cannot write superheroes. Really? Because women don't read about superheroes. You know that's not true. (laughs) Clearly. Clearly this is not true. Clearly. The medium is becoming a greater part of our pop culture experience. And because of that, I have a great deal of hope that the more that this is out there, the more we will attract diverse creators, diverse voices who will be knocking against the walls, knocking on the doors, and creating their own work. There's a larger trend in terms of comics commenting on the world. Historically, if you think of comic books that weren't the kind of standard issue, kind of the more indie versions like Harvey Picard or uh, Robert Crumb, you would get the sense. And then there was the turn toward weightier graphic novels like Joe Sacco's work, of course, you know, the great Art Spiegelman's uh, Mouse. Mm-hmm. And so now it feels that even more uh, mainstream serialized comics are, are able to, to take on the big issues. The beautiful thing about comics is that they are that intersection between prose and film. 
in which we can capture both the visual nature of film, but also the interiority of a novel. And the beautiful thing about that is that it allows both the eye and the mind to bear witness in tandem. And so you become immersed, um, you become surrounded by the story in ways that you might not necessarily be if you were just reading prose. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has become a medium in which people are coming into it and saying, wow, this is an opportunity for me to live in stories. You know, I can live in a novel, but living in a comic book and a graphic novel is a very, very different experience. And I think that it's one that people are waking up to. And, and for many, many years, comics were seen as childish and remedial. And that's changing. That is absolutely changing for the better. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. So they say the subsequent fall was inevitable. They never stood a chance, they were written that way Innocent victims of their story Like Romeo and Juliet T'was written in the stars before they even met That love and fate and a touch of stupidity Would rob them of their hope of living happily The endings are often a little bit gory I wonder why they didn't just change their story we're told we have to do what we're told, but surely Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty Just because you find that life's not fair It doesn't mean that you just have to grin and bear it If you always take it on the chin and wear it Nothing will change even if you're little, you can do a lot You mustn't let a little thing like little stop you If you sit around and let them get on top You might as well be saying you think that it's okay And that's not right And if it's not right You have to put it right slip of a bolt there's a tiny revolt the seed of a war in the creak of a floorboard a storm can begin with the flap of a wing the tiniest might packs the mightiest sting every day starts with the tick of a clock all escapes start with the click of a lock if you're stuck in your story and wanna get out you don't have to cry you don't have to shout cause if you're little you can do a lot you mustn't let a little thing like little stop you if you sit around and let them get on top you won't change a thing just because you find that life's not fair it doesn't mean that you just have to grin and bear it if you always take it on the chin and wear it you might as well be saying you think that it's okay and that's not right and if it's not right you have to put it right And nobody else is gonna put it right for me Nobody but me is gonna change my story Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty You're the answer, son. <laughs> 